Amen. When it comes to the difficult doctrines that we find throughout the Bible, uh, there are several subjects that have caused Christians throughout the ages to, you know, scratch their heads as we try to make sense of these spiritual truths. Uh, For example, how many of us have struggled to understand how an infinite God can present himself as three distinct persons? Uh, We search the scriptures and, and we try to make sense of it all and we learn that there's only one God, there's one infinite God, and yet he's revealed himself as eternally existing as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And with that, we wonder, how can that be? Uh, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's not a contradiction, but it most certainly is a paradox, and it's difficult to understand. How many students of the Scriptures have also strained to grasp the hypostatic union of Christ Jesus? I'm sure uh, we struggle to, to grasp, you know, how can uh, you know, Jesus be both man and God, and yet the Bible is perfectly clear that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. And, and yet again, uh, it's just hard to grasp. You know, when it comes to biblical conundrums like these, you know, one doctrinal difficulty that has been hotly debated for several centuries, well, it's centered around the issue that arises as we attempt to uh, strike a balance between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity. And while there should be note that, uh, no doubt in our minds that uh, God has a predetermined plan, well, we also recognize that this predetermined plan of God appears to involve the free will choices of every single person. And yet this only raises the question, well, if God is truly sovereign, well, then how can humans have free will? Or if humans truly have free will, then how can God be still sovereign? Well, with these questions in mind, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that there's a long list of, his, uh, of theologians throughout history who have actually spent a great deal of time attempting to explain this doctrinal dilemma. And they, they've done this by presenting uh, their solution for this scriptural paradox. Uh, this list of theologians includes John Calvin, whose teachings about God's sovereignty became the foundations for the theological system that we now call Calvinism. Then there's Jacob Arminius, whose teachings about the free will of man became known as Arminianism. And let's not forget about Luis Molina, who developed a concept uh, regarding the middle knowledge of God, and his theology uh, came to be known as Molinism. Now, as we consider all three of these uh, systems of theology, you know, the, the doctrines of Calvinism, Arminianism, and Molinism, in, in my opinion, they, they fail to answer all the questions. You know, the, you have a, a good doctrine when it, ra- when it answers more questions than it raises. And, and I just feel like, you know, these three, uh, uh, you know, these, these three isms uh, really kind of fail to answer all of the questions that they ought to answer. Uh, and, and so with that, I'd like to, you know, maybe take some time tonight just to consider what the Bible says regarding the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humankind so that we might try to make better sense of it all. And the evidence, you know, that, uh, that all three camps, uh, uh, you know, as we can, well, I, I guess I should say the, uh, the Christians who uh, fall into these three camps, you know, there, there's, uh, there's issues that arise, 
You know, when, when people get rooted and, and dig their heels into one of these three camps referring to Calvinism, Arminianism, and Molinism, you know, people can just kind of dig their heels in and, and they can carry on this debate. And it's been, it's been hotly debated since the 17th century. Uh, and yet it's sad to say that I've actually personally watched many people who have allowed this in-house argument to affect their walk with the Lord in a very negative way. And, and with that being the case, you know, it's my hope that here in our study tonight, uh, we'll learn to avoid this divisive debate as, as we learn how to just simply rest in the knowledge that we've all been predestined to choose. Well, with this as the goal, we're going to spend our time this evening exploring what the Bible says about the sovereignty uh, that, that, that led the Lord to, to then give us the free will uh, to make these choices. And with this as a focus, uh, we're going to spend our time tonight considering, first of all, God's predetermined plan. Uh, secondly, we'll consider the responsibility of man. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider how, how, how we strike a balance between both of, these, uh, both of these topics. So with this as the outline, if you would, let's begin our study, uh, opening our Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 1. Here we find Paul. He's writing to the Christians in Ephesus about the predetermined plan of God. Uh, now, as you make your way to the first chapter of Ephesians, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Bible is filled with scriptures that make reference to the predetermined plan of God. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word predetermined, well, it refers to that which was decided in advance or something that was established beforehand. And, and listen, when it comes to the predetermined plan of God, uh, we're also referring to that which he has predestined. So we're talking about God's you know, ability to predestine things. And, and, and so the question that we ought to be asking is this, what exactly did God predestine? What has he predetermined in eternity past? And with this question in mind, I want to focus your attention here at Ephesians chapter 1. If you would, let's begin reading there at verse 3, because here Paul declares, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. I want to stop right here. I want to consider how we find Paul. He's presenting the Christians there at the church in Ephesus with details about the predetermined plan of God. And we must not fail to notice, first of all, there in verse 4, where Paul informs us about the way that God shows us in him before he created the world. God shows us in him before the foundations of the world. Think about that for a moment. Before God created this world, he already chose us. Isn't that incredible? And yet we must not fail to notice that he chose us where? In him. He already chose us in Christ. Or I might put it like this. In Christ, we were chosen. And the reason why is because every spiritual blessing that comes from heavenly places, well, they're received in Christ. Now, to further grasp God's predetermined plan here that results in our choosing, if you would look with me again there, beginning at verse 4, here Paul tells us that God the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, 
according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now, Christian, listen, uh, not only are we chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, but according to Paul, we were also predestined. We were predestined to become the adopted children of God according to the good pleasure of his will. What this means is that before the foundations of the world, before God created this world, he already had a predetermined plan by which sinners can be accepted in the beloved as we become the adopted children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And in order to further grasp this predestined plan, uh, let's consider Paul's explanation that's found here in Ephesians chapter 1. Look with me there, beginning at verse 7. Here Paul goes on to declare, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now, as we begin to break apart Paul's point here, we must not fail to notice how, uh, how he bookends this pregnant sentence with in him. There in the beginning of verse 7, in him. There at the end of verse 10, in him. The, the, the in him statement are become the, becomes the bookends of this sentence. And so as we pick this apart, we see that it's in him where we have redemption. In him we have the forgiveness of sins. In him, we know the mystery of his will, which he purposed, where? In himself. In him, we are being gathered together, where? In Christ. The reason why is because in him, we've been predestined according to the purpose of God the Father. This was precisely the the point that Paul is going on to make here in this chapter. As a matter of fact, uh, look with me there beginning at verse 11. Here Paul goes on to write, in him... Also, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that those who are in Christ, well, we've been predestined according to the purpose of God. To sum that up with simplicity, those who are in Christ... Well, we are the chosen. We are the adopted children of God. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been forgiven of every sin. And all of this according to the riches of his grace, which are found where? In him. Now, in order to grasp this predestination that is found in him, it's important for us to realize that we've been predestined in Christ because Christ is the predestined one. Christ is the predestined one, therefore in him we're predestined. To prove my point, let's back up and take another look there at Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4. There Paul declares, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now think about that for a moment. God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, right? He chose us in him. 
That word chose, you know, it, it really uh, is an interesting word because it deals with our election. So, so we are elect in Christ, and that's something that was decided before the foundation of the world. And as we consider something that happened before the foundation of the world, did you exist before the foundations of the world? Nope. Did I exist? I know I'm old, but, you know, did I exist before the foundations of the world? Nope. But who did exist before the foundations of the world? Well, our Savior Jesus existed. He is the infinite Logos, the divine mind of God, who is one person within the triune Godhead. And with that being the case, I want to remind you of something that the Apostle John wrote in Revelation chapter 13. There we learn that Jesus is the Lamb slain from where? From the foundation of the world. Now, that was carried out in real time there in the first century, but from the foundation of the world, Jesus was already determined to be the lamb slain. Peter then confirms this later in 1 Peter chapter 1. There he tells us that Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world. To to what end? For what reason? Well, listen, Jesus was predestined to be our savior before the foundations of the world. Jesus was predetermined before the foundations of the world to be the one who would save us. And in the same divine decision, God the Father chose us, elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? Because Jesus was chosen to come as the elect one, the predestined one, who would then provide us with a new federal headship by which we escape the federal headship of Adam. So Jesus is the predestined one. And under his federal headship, what does that make me? predestined. Jesus is the elect one. And so in him, what does that make me? Elect. Jesus is the son of God. And so in him, what does that make me? An adopted son of God. Jesus is a king and a priest of the most high God. In Christ, then what am I under his federal headship? A king and a priest of the most high God. In him, All of the blessings of Christ now extend to us through this federal headship. You know, consider federal headship here for a second. You know, when when Biden goes overseas and represents all of all Americans, you know, he's federally representing every single one of us. I know. (laughs) And, And in similar fashion, Adam was our federal head there in the garden. We're under the federal headship of Adam at the moment of our conception. And it's not a good thing, because Adam fell, and he was spiritually dead. But in Christ, the federal headship of Jesus Christ now applies to us. And so those who trust in Jesus Christ become predestined, elect kings and priests of the Most High God and sons of the living God. 
Now, as we consider God's predetermined plan, which is centered around our Savior, the predestined elect Jesus Christ, well, I want to take a moment to ask, did God also predetermine who would receive the blessings of Jesus? Or does every person have the free will, which enables us to either receive or reject the predestination of our predetermined Savior? With this question in mind, I want to consider uh, the way that Paul addresses all of this here in Ephesians chapter 1. If you would look with me there at Ephesians chapter 1, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 13. Here Paul declares, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Ephesus now to understand how they were able to access all of the blessings that are found in Christ Jesus. All, all of the blessings that come from the federal headship of Jesus Christ are, are accessed or, or are embraced as we enter into Christ. And, and just to be clear about this, you know, Paul kind of is a little bit twisty in the way that he lays all this out. And so I want to put verse 13 into a chronological progression or, or an order that actually uh, makes sense here. According to Paul here in verse 13, the believers there in Ephesus first heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of salvation. And then after embracing the gospel message, that's when they trusted in, in Christ Jesus. And then at that moment of belief, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So that's the chronological order of things laid out there in verse 13. They heard the word of truth. That's the gospel of our salvation. They embraced the gospel message. And in so doing, they trusted in Jesus Christ. And at that moment, they were then sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And in that moment, they were born of the Spirit. Now, it would be nice if I could just wrap up this second point right here by insisting that, look, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They heard the word of God. They believed it. They trusted in Jesus Christ. They were born again and sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It, it would be nice to just, you know, sum it up right there. And yet we must not forget that the carnal mind cannot receive the things of God. The reason why is because the fallen state of man has rendered us spiritually dead in sins and trespasses. Therefore, we really need to take a moment to ask, how can a spiritually dead person embrace the gospel of grace? Now, with this question in mind, I want to consider how Paul describes the problem. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you would, let's uh, flip forward here to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to focus your attention beginning at verse 1. Here Paul goes on to declare, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping uh, his audience to understand that the unbeliever is actually dead in their trespasses and sins. From this description, there are those who embrace Calvinism and they're quick to ask, well, what can a dead person do? What can a dead person do? Well, the obvious answer is nothing, unless they're zombies. 
But, but seriously, you know, what can a dead person do? It's nothing. And from this, they insist, well, the unrepentant unbeliever is, is said to be dead here. They're dead in trespasses and sins. And so it's a spiritual deadness. And therefore, the implication uh, that, that Paul is presenting is that the spiritually dead person can't do anything. And so therefore, they're just, they're dead until they're made alive. The Calvinist then concludes that a person must be regenerated first before they can believe in Jesus Christ. And so they believe that the Holy Spirit comes along and regenerates a person, fills them with faith, and then they trust in Jesus Christ, and that's when they're saved. Or in other words, regeneration precedes salvation. If that's the case, then do unregenerate sinners really have the ability to choose Jesus? If you must be regenerated first before you can be saved, well then, can anybody actually get saved apart from the regeneration that, that God must uh, you know, carry out in, in a person's heart? Well, with this question of mine, uh, let's consider, does Paul even agree with this point of view? If you would look back at Ephesians chapter two, I want to draw your attention there to verse four, because here Paul goes on to declare that God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ for by grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And here in these verses, we, we learn here that God made us alive together with Christ when? Well, verse five, after we received the grace of God. And according to Paul, we received the grace of God, how? Verse eight, by faith and by faith alone, not of any works that we did, not, not, of, uh, not any good decisions that we made along the way. Simply by faith, we receive the grace of God. And what this tells us then is that faith precedes salvation, not regeneration. Those who say that regeneration precedes salvation The idea being that regeneration precedes salvation because regeneration has to happen first and then faith can come. No, no, no. Paul says faith first, then grace, and by grace he makes us alive together with Christ. It's at that moment of faith when we're made alive together with Christ through regeneration. Therefore, those who insist that regeneration precedes faith are actually forcing this onto the text. It's not actually found in the text. And then then we go back and, and remember that it was when we first heard the gospel that we trusted in Christ and were then born again. At the same time, we must not fail to consider the, the, uh, what Paul wrote about unbelievers in his letter to the church in Rome. And, and so in order to uh, further understand that the problem is not completely, completely solved yet, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to rem- remind you about the day when Adam and Eve spiritually died. I'm sure we've all read the story in the book of Genesis. This happened there in the garden of Eden. And on the day when they ate that forbidden fruit, they spiritually died on that day. God even told them in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And they didn't physically die that day, 
Oh, they spiritually died on that day. And while it's true that their sin rendered them spiritually dead, well, it's also true that they were immediately convicted about their sins. Once they realized that they had sinned against God, what did they do? Well, they immediately started trying to cover themselves. They tried to cover themselves with, with fig leaves, and, and, and then they heard God walking in the garden, and what did they do? They went and hid themselves. Why? They were convicted. They knew that they had done something wrong. From this, we can see that those who are dead in trespasses and sins, well, they're still able to experience conviction when we sin against God. It's not like this renders a person so totally depraved that they don't even feel bad about the sins they commit. So, you know, we have to be careful that we don't strain the limits of what Paul means when he says that we're dead spiritually, that, that we're dead in trespasses and sins. Yeah, we're depraved, completely fallen, and the carnal mind is at war with God, no doubt about it. But does that mean that, that we can't feel conviction about sin? Well, of course not. And listen, it's the conviction of sin that helps us to recognize our need for a Savior, At the same time, though, listen, the unrepentant unbeliever tends to respond much like Adam and Eve. You know, we we attempt to cover our sins with the fig leaves of religiosity, you know, and and not only that, but unrepentant unbelievers look for ways to hide from the Lord. Because in our fallen state, let's be honest, we love darkness rather than the light of the Lord. And, And so still, problem not solved. I want to consider how Paul describes all of this here in Romans chapter 3. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 10, because here Paul declares, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's reminding us about the reality that the unregenerate unbeliever will never initiate the search for God. No unregenerate unbeliever will ever wake up one day and and in the strength of their own fallen mind think, I'm going to get saved today. Won't happen. At the same time, though, I must also insist that our spiritual deadness won't stop us from submitting to God. I remember when I was a, a, a you know, little kid and my older brother would, you know, you know, crank my arm up behind my back, make me cry out for mercy. Yeah, when I cried out for mercy, I wasn't engaging any kind of good work. It was just me submitting to my brother, you know, and, and, and he'd crank that arm and, and make me cry out. That submission to, to the strength of my brother was in no way a, a, a showing of my good works or something. Nope, it was just me going, I give up. <laughs> I give up. I don't want my arm broken, you know. And so, too, the unregenerate unbeliever can submit. In, their deadness, in the deadness of their trespasses and sins, we are still able to submit to the Lord through the conviction of sin. And while it's true that the unregenerate unbeliever will never initiate the search for God, 
Well, it's good to know that God has already primed our desire for salvation, and he did this by placing his law upon our hearts. You know, when we're born and, and even being created there within the womb, as God is forming our inward parts there within the womb of, the, of our mother, you know, he was placing information into every single person. He's, he's put the laws of logic, and he's placed the law uh, of, the, of the Ten Commandments within every single developing baby. So he's primed our hearts. He's given us that desire for salvation by giving us logic, the wisdom of God, and his law written upon our hearts. And we find the evidence of this in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul tells us that the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. Yeah, the law is our tutor, our teacher, and it's there to bring us to Christ. Not only that, but the Lord, uh, he's also sent the Holy Spirit to draw us to himself. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 16 where Jesus informs us that the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. God sent his Holy Spirit to convict our, our, our hearts so that we might recognize our, our need for a, a Savior, and so that sinners might embrace the gospel of grace when they hear it. That being the case, the unregenerate sinner doesn't need to initiate the search for God. Not that, not that they ever would. But the Holy Spirit was sent to draw us to the cross. And all we have to do is cry, Uncle. All we have to do is submit to the one who's convicting our hearts, the, to the one who's spiritually cranking our arm, arm up behind the back. We only need to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit by choosing to repent and receive by faith the free gift of God's grace. I like the way that Jesus sums it up in John chapter 3. It's there where he declares that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, God's predetermined plan of salvation was put in motion when he decided to send his only begotten son to provide us with the way to be saved because Jesus is the way. He then sent his Holy Spirit to convict our hearts of sin so that every sinner might be able to see our great need for salvation. And those who will respond to the Holy Spirit by embracing the gospel of grace were then sealed into our adoption according to the predetermined plan of the one who predetermined us to be adopted children of God in Christ Jesus. In this way, God the Father has made us accepted in the beloved. For the unrepentant unbeliever who will not submit, God keeps cranking that arm up. I'm sure we've all seen it. I'm guessing many of us have experienced it, where God just continues to bring us to a place where we recognize our need to submit to him. From this, we see that God's sovereignly predetermined plan of salvation was put in motion when he sent his only begotten son. Jesus is foreordained from the foundations of the world, but then he fulfilled this in real time when he came and died on the cross for our sins. 
And he decided beforehand that every person must also choose for themselves whether to receive or reject his free gift of grace. And so we see that this is a sovereign predetermined plan, which includes a sovereign decision to give every single person the choice. Yeah. Your free will choice was something that God sovereignly determined. And as we begin to strike a balance between the predetermined plan of God and the responsibility of humankind, well, then another doctrinal issue that we're forced to tackle arises up as, as we start to consider uh, the foreknowledge of God. And with that, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. It's here in Romans 8 where we find Paul writing about God's foreknowledge and how it uh, fits into this whole concept of predeterminism. And as you're making your, your way there to the eighth chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to consider the difference between foreknowledge and predeterminism. It'll first help us to know that the word foreknowledge simply refers to something that you know beforehand or, or prior to the situation. And while some people don't think that God knows the future before it happens, uh, we call those people, well, I'll, I'll refrain. It's, it's open theism is the, is the concept. And there are some people, you know, who are Christians and, and they also believe in open theism, which is to say that they think that God is surprised tomorrow just as, just as much as we are. And I would just say that they're silly. Okay. We know what the Bible says. The Bible says that God knows the end from when? The beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. He's all omniscient. He's all-knowing. Therefore, God knows everything that's going to happen before it ever happens. And this trips a lot of Christians up when, when they realize this because, you know, if God already knows everything in advance, he already knows who's going to accept his grace and who's going to reject it. And as we consider the foreknowledge of God, there are those who suggest that God's foreknowledge then results in some, some form of hard determinism. Or in other words, they, they argue that, you know, God in his foreknowledge must know everything because he determined uh, all of those things to happen in advance. You know, we find this kind of in, in Molinism, you know, where uh, the, the concept here is that, that God looks down all the possible timelines that could exist, looks at all the different counterfactuals, and, and chooses the one uh, with, with the outcome that he likes the most. And, and so in my mind, Molinism is really the worst of Calvinism and Arminianism, you know, because we have what appears to be free will. We, we have what appears to be choices in front of us, and yet they're not real choices because we couldn't ever actually choose a counterfactual that does not play into the timeline that God predetermined before he set everything in motion. So in my opinion, Molinism is just the worst of both Calvinism and Arminianism. But then there are those who think that, well, God just reacts to what he sees in the future, that God looks down the corridor of time and just begins to react to it all. And, and as we begin to consider these concepts, we must understand that God's foreknowledge doesn't force us into some sort of fatalistic future. And, and, and <clears throat> not only that, but, but he's not just being reactive to our decisions either. With all this in mind, I want to consider this connection between God's foreknowledge and his predetermined plan. So if you would look with me here at Romans chapter 8, I want to begin reading there at verse 29, because here Paul declares, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, 
These he also glorified. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping us to to understand that God has indeed predestined us to a specific end, and the end is this, to be conformed to the image of his Son, which is why those who enter into Christ, uh, they've entered into this predestination uh, because we've answered the call, and and if you answer the call, then you're justified, and if you're justified, then it's inevitable that you're going to be glorified. From this, we see that it's God's predetermined plan to transform the lives of those who trust in Jesus Christ as he makes us more and more like our Messiah, Jesus, and all the way till the day when we're finally glorified in brand new bodies. But at the same time, we must not, we must not fail to notice here that Paul began this section of Scripture by first mentioning the foreknowledge of God, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, as we consider this concept... Uh, There are those in the Arminian camp who have made the mistake of thinking that, well, God looks down the corridor of time and and decides to to, to predestine those that he already knows will believe in Jesus. So so God looks down the corridor of time and he says, oh, you know, this one and that one will believe in, in Jesus, but those won't. So these are predestined and those aren't. One of the problems with this explanation, though, is that it not only makes God a respecter of persons, but then it also diminishes his sovereignty. How so? Well, rather than God being the sovereign savior who chooses us in him from the foundations of the world, he instead looks down the corridor of time as he reacts to our decisions. So God now reacts to whatever we want. He's effectively submitting his sovereignty to our choices. And that's very problematic in maintaining and protecting the sovereignty of God. Please understand that our salvation isn't based on God's response to his foreknowledge to our desires. No, instead, his foreknowledge simply provided him with the infinite wisdom that helped him to see our need for a savior before he created the foundations of this world, he could already see what was going to happen. He could already see the fall of Adam and Eve there in the garden. Before God created the world, he already knew that Adam and Eve would fall into sin. And and with that foreknowledge, God already decided to sacrifice his only begotten son before the foundations of the world. He did this so that whosoever will How many people is whosoever? All of them. Whosoever is whosoever. And God put in in motion this plan, this predetermined plan of salvation so that whosoever will would be saved according to the predetermined plan of God. And in this way, Jesus becomes the elect one who was sent to save those who are elect. And who are those who are elect? Those who are in him. How do we get in him? By trusting the gospel of grace. I'll remind you that John the Apostle referred to Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God clearly foreknew before the foundation of the world that we would need a savior. And so from the foundations of the world, he foreordained a plan by which sinners could be saved from his righteous wrath. And from this, we again see this balance between God's sovereignly predetermined plan and the responsibility that he expects from each person. To further demonstrate this delicate balance, 
I'm going to consider something that Paul said in Acts chapter 17, if you would. Let's turn to the 17th chapter of Acts, because here in Acts 17, well, we find Paul, he's preaching to the Greeks there in Athens, and it's here in this message where Paul helps them to understand how God predestined every single one of them to choose salvation. With this in mind, if you would look with me here at Acts chapter 17, I want to focus your attention there, beginning at verse 22. Here Luke tells us that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and, notice, has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping the, uh, the, the philosophers there in Athens, Greece, to, to, to recognize the balance between God's predetermined plan and the responsibility of man. He, he beautifully strikes the balance here by showing us that God does have a predetermined plan, and that predetermined plan was put in motion so that we would seek the Lord. God determined our pre-appointed times. He's predetermined the boundaries of our dwellings. He's placed us in, in the times and the boundaries in which we live to give us the very best chance to seek the Lord in the hopes that we might grope for him and find him and be saved. God sovereignly decided before the foundations of the world to send a Savior who would die for our sins and not for our sins only, but according to John, for the sins of the whole world, And as a result, he's predestined us to use our free will to choose or reject the free gift of God's grace. If we freely choose to trust in Jesus Christ, we're born again and in him, we receive all the benefits of his federal headship. If we reject, well, we're still stuck under the federal headship of Adam. And those who are stuck under the federal headship of Adam will suffer the eternal consequences of the choice they made to reject the gracious gift of forgiveness, which is found in Christ Jesus. And in light of all this, we can clearly see where these two streams of thought cross. But just in case you, you miss it here, I'd like you to look with me at something that we find in Luke chapter 23. You would, let's turn to the 23rd chapter of Luke's gospel account and As you turn to Luke 23, I just want to consider the argument of those who suggest that the predestined plan of God and the responsibility of man, well, they're like two streams of thought that disappear over the horizon of human understanding. And there's no way for us to even try to make sense of where these two streams of thought cross. And they go on to encourage us, just it's just best to not even attempt to reconcile these two streams of thought since we really can't see where these paths cross off the horizon. 
But I would argue that these two streams of thought cross paths at the obvious place, at the cross. They cross at the cross. As a matter of fact, I want to consider the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you would, let's focus on the two thieves that died on either side of our Savior. If you would, look with me here at Luke chapter 23. If you would, look with me, uh, beginning there at verse 39. Here Luke tells us that one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now here in these verses, we discover uh, again this balance between God's predestined plan and the responsibility of man. And here in this account of the crucifixion, we're presented with a, a perfect picture of the way that these two theological streams of thought cross right there at the cross. As we consider Christ's cross, imagine for a moment the vertical beam of this cross representing God's sovereignly predetermined plan. This involves the, the, the choice in eternity past when he decided, when, when the Father decided to send his only begotten Son you know, to come and, and, and die for our sins. The vertical beam represents, you know, this sovereignly uh, decided uh, plan to provide us with, with a, a Savior who can offer us the free gift of grace. The, the, the vertical beam of the cross represents God's sovereignty and the choice that he made to allow Jesus to become our federal representative. But then there's the horizontal beam of the cross that represents the responsibility of man. This, this horizontal beam it pre presents us with the fact that every single person is called to make a decision, and, and it's according to God's predetermined plan that we have the free will choice to either receive or reject Jesus Christ. And much like the thief who was crucified on one side of Jesus Christ, there have been many throughout the ages who have recognized their need for God's forgiveness. Much like the, the thief on the one side who realized that Jesus is God incarnate and placed his faith in him, you know, there are many who have exercised their free will in the same sort of way. They've thrown themselves at the merciful feet of our Savior as they've received his everlasting love. But then there are those on the other side of the cross those like the thief who decide to reject the free gift of grace. And as a result, they've chosen to reject the predestined plan of salvation. And with their own free will, they've chosen to accept the everlasting punishment that God will pour out on those who freely chose to reject our Redeemer. In both cases, the predestined plan of God remains the same. You see, according to God's predetermined plan, Every born-again believer is going to go to heaven. And everyone who rejected our Redeemer is going to go to hell. That is the end of every single person according to God's predetermined plan. Did he predetermine who will end up in heaven and who will end up in hell? Kind of. In the sense that he predetermined one plan of salvation and only one. 
There is no other plan. There is no other option. And so in choosing Jesus Christ as the only predetermined Savior, and in choosing to give us the option of trusting in Jesus or rejecting him, he has decided upon the, 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 the final destination of every single person, but then left the choice to us of which one of those two locations we want to end up at. And so God has, in fact, predetermined our choice. Not what we would choose, but he has predestined us to choose. And it's our choice whether to accept Jesus Christ by faith or reject him to our own demise. With that, I encourage you in closing, if you find yourself on the wrong side of the cross tonight, that choice is yours. That choice is yours to make. And yet if that's where you are, I encourage you, embrace God's predestined plan of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the best decision you'll ever make. Let's pray.